I've never seen bundles getting unbundled without them getting subsequently rebundled. Traditional bundles were built around production efficiencies. They were built around the firm boundaries. They were built around production supply chains. So they were built around the constraints of what enabled efficient production. As we move forward, because the ability to serve the demand is the key control point, you will have to rebundle in order to best serve the demand. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello everyone, Simone Cicero here. Before handing you to this kickoff episode of the second season of the podcast with uh, no less than Sanjit Chudali, I have a couple of announcements to make. First, as you may have noticed, uh, we have been on a couple of months break since we've wrapped up our first uh, season uh, with uh, Bill Fisher and Lisa Gensky on July the 21st. Uh, we are now super happy to be back with this uh, second season where we continue to explore the future of platform ecosystem thinking with a new set of inspiring guests. I want to thank you listeners for the amazing feedback we received on the first uh, series and I encourage you to review the podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Uh, this uh, in general really motivated us to continue our uh, adventures in podcasting as uh, a structured sense-making process uh, where we would uh, hold exploratory conversations with thinkers and practitioners whose work inspires us and uh, can also contribute to inspire our community of listeners. As our loyal listeners know, the first season of the Boundaries Conversation podcast was uh, tightly linked to the research for our coming white paper, uh, New Foundations of Platform Ecosystem Thinking, Designing Products and Organizations for a Changing World. Uh, we are now currently preparing for the launch of the paper, in uh, possibly in early November, and uh, we have been doing a lot of work recently on exploring the new growth uh, theory of platforms and uh, as well as advancing our understanding of what does it mean uh, in terms of how we frame strategies in the 21st uh, century. So stay tuned, uh, please uh, follow our latest progress on the dedicated white paper page, uh, white paper page on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com by clicking on the tab Thinking. Finally, as we move into a closer examination of organizational evolutions in the new age of uh, platforms and ecosystems, uh, we have launched a parallel research project focusing on entrepreneurial ecosystem enabling organizations, uh, what we call the EEOs, uh, with a series of interviews that uh, you can find on YouTube, uh, on our channel or SoundCloud as well, by searching for EEO with three E and one O, uh, EEO conversations. Uh, we are also organizing on October 21st to 23rd a masterclass exploring this emerging model, which you can find on our website under the tab uh, trainings. It's a masterclass focused on uh, Rendanehi, which is the uh, organizational model that inspired our research. Now, without further ado, I'm so excited to kick off uh, season two of the Boundaries Conversations podcast with uh, Sanjit Chaudhari, introduced by my regular co-host, Sina Heikila. Hi again, listeners. Dina Heikel here, co-host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. 
It's great to be back, and we're really looking forward to handing you this incredible episode with the platform legend Sanjit Chudri. Sanjit Paul Chudri is the founder of Platformation Labs and the best-selling author of Platform Revolution and Platform Scale. He frequently advises the leadership of Fortune 500 firms and has been selected as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. Sanjit's work on platform has been selected by Harvard Business Review as one of the top 10 ideas in strategy and has been featured thrice in the HBR Top 10 Must Read compilations. You can find out more about his work in the show notes of this episode at stories.platformsciencetoolkit.com slash podcast or on your favorite podcast platform. In our conversation, we talk about Sanji's journey from micro to macro perspectives when it comes to analyzing the platform economy. And he helps us understand in depth how control and commoditization of supply play out in the current evolution of platforms and how regulators are to look at it. He also paints an extremely interesting picture of the unbundling of work and what it may mean for the future of work coordination infrastructures as work gets rebundled in a post-firm context. Are we going to see teams join up to solve challenges related to the job to be done rather than taking on larger roles? And will the job welfare bundle disappear? These are some of the interesting questions we dig into with Sanjit. Beyond that, we also ponder on how some countries leveraging leading digital platforms start to export essential infrastructures like finance and information technology, offering support and investment opportunities for businesses beyond national borders. This is likely to shift the geopolitical landscape for good and start a new area of globalization. After this episode, we definitely feel the need to make a second part of the conversation really soon. We strongly suggest you have your notepads ready when listening to this insightful episode with Sanjit Chudri. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Boundless Conversation podcast. Today, I am here with my co-host, Sina Heikila. Hello, everyone. And uh, with us, we have a legend of platform thinking, I would say. From Singapore, we have uh, Sanjit uh, Chudari. Good morning, Sanjit. Good morning, Simone. Hello, everyone. Really glad to be here today. Right. And I, I just said good morning, but in reality, I think in Singapore, it's, af- it's afternoon, right? Something like that. Yeah, that's right. Super. So I'm really excited about this conversation. We are in touch, I think, since uh, something like uh, six years. We have been comparing notes uh, for, for many, many, many times. And I, I have been an admirer of your work, like thousands of other people in, in the world. So uh, I think our listeners will be really excited to start uh, the a uh, new season of uh, Boundaries Conversation podcast with you. No? And so I think uh, the interesting place to start this conversation with you would really be to discuss what we have been discussing quickly in the preparation chat. So your journey from the micro aspects of the technicalities of platforms and how they work uh, mm-hmm. into the macro context of uh, platforms. So topics related to the systems that at some point, I would say, contain these platforms and, and the, the systems where these platforms are having their impact. So, so Sanjit, how did it feel to go through this uh, journey uh, from your point of view? That's a great question. It's, it's actually a necessary journey that I, I believe you need to go through in order to really understand a topic like platforms or anything where, uh, in, in, in a systems perspective to really understand a topic very deeply. You need to understand the micro interactions within the system before you are able to identify the macro effects of it. And I think the challenge partly comes in when people don't understand the micro and they they talk about the macro directly. Um, 
you don't approach it from first principles if you do that. So I think um, there are a couple of things that have kind of prompted or made this a natural progression. When I started out, I wanted to understand how emerging business models, and this was back in 2008 or so, uh, where, when we did not really use the words platforms and we did use the word marketplace or two-sided market, but very narrowly to refer to certain kinds of app stores. But I kind of started this journey trying to figure out how these new emerging business models are fundamentally different and what made them different compared to the past and were they fundamentally different or not in the first place? What was new? How were things changing? And that kind of led me into the micro of it because when you go back to really understanding the micro, it starts with two specific questions. How is value created and how is value captured? Once you understand those two things from First principles, what is the minimum unit of value creation? What are the specific control points needed to capture value? How do you ensure governance in a new value creation paradigm? How do you ensure external participation? All of those are very much the basic micro components of understanding platform business models, platform interactions. And when you start then building that lens, which which I did over the first few years of my work, I got a lot of opportunity over the next, I would say, six to seven years, which have been the last seven years or so, to apply this lens to a whole range of different fields, uh, you know, working in a whole range of different industries, but also applying this to think about, well, what does this mean for the future of work? What does this mean for the future of uh, how we build, uh, how, how we address inequality in society or uh, provide uh, a, a universal basic access to critical services. What does this mean in terms of geopolitical competition? All of these macro effects started coming in as I was getting pulled into various contexts. And I had this really strong micro lens to look at these contexts through. And now it's I've, I, I believe it's at a point where I've been able to abstract and create more of a macro theory as well to un- explain what is happening at the macro level. So that's kind of been the the journey as, as we think of it. And a lot of my uh, initial work, the first two books that I wrote, came out when I was in the micro phase. And I believe that it's now a point where the macro piece is really catching up. So that's that's kind of been the journey when I reflect on it. Right. And uh, if you were to write a book on the macro, like maybe you are doing, uh, who knows, what would be the title of this book? So what would be the thesis or the multiple theses that are emerging in your thinking with regards to the macro of uh, platforms and ecosystem as they are embedded in this uh, crazy society that we are living in uh, these days. Getting to a title is going to be quite difficult because I really uh, need to write a book before I think of the title. But I would say the key thesis is going to be the following. And that is, if you really want to understand how technology is changing the world, don't just think of it in terms of exponential value creation, think of it also in terms of new rules of control and commoditization. And when you marry these two perspectives of exponential value creation, which comes hand in hand with control and commoditization, then you have a full picture of how the world is changing. If you just keep talking about exponential technology, the exponential organizations, it sounds like that it, that is a set of tools that literally every company can use, uh, no matter where the industry is, no matter what the company's asset base looks like. But if you understand control and commoditization, you can then map out the playing field and say, yes, we do understand exponential technologies are in place, but given where this industry is, given where incumbents are, given where new firms are coming in, these kinds of firms have the ability to 
manage these exponential technologies for their benefit because they are harnessing the right control systems. And these kind of companies are getting commoditized. And no matter what they do, they are not in a position to handle exponential technologies. So I feel that there's just too much narrative on the first part and too little on the second part. And that the second part is the focus of my work. And that's essentially what would be the focus of another book once I go down that path. I'm particularly interested in the, and I'm sure we're going to touch also the control uh, aspect, but uh, I'm very interested as a start to understand better how you relate this idea of platforms with the dynamics of uh, commoditization and componentization in the market. So essentially for our listeners as well, commoditization is always uh, and often, I would say, an effect of the dynamics of competition. And uh, I also know that you have a very strong ideas about how these platforms and ecosystems are changing the rule of competition. So I would love for you to expand a bit more this relationship between exponentiality, competition, commoditization. Uh, what is it all about, uh, Sanjit? Let's think of this as just me thinking aloud on this. I don't have a fully cohesive theory to bring to the table, but here's how I see this, right? Platforms fundamentally work because they have the ability to either aggregate the demand or they have they have the ability to standardize the supply those are the two things that platforms do really well some do one really well some do the other really well so i'll just give a couple of examples netflix for example is not really a full platform business the way we would like it to be because it aggregates the demand but it doesn't fully standardize the supply on the other hand uber for example aggregates the demand but also standardizes the supply to the extent that every supplier is interchangeable. You don't really care who the driver is that's going to take you from point A to point B. So platforms fundamentally do these two things really, really well. Now, if you think of uh, these two aspects, depending on how well the platform aggregates the demand, it develops negotiation advantage to then standardize the supply. In order to standardize the supply, the platform needs to pull agency away from the suppliers. And as an effect of that happening, it ends up commoditizing the suppliers to some extent. So whether suppliers will become completely commoditized, what level of agency will be pulled away from suppliers, what level of uh, uh, demand aggregation and control does the platform have, all these things vary from uh, industry to industry. And I would say it's not so much industry, which is the unit of analysis, but the, the nature of the interaction is the unit of analysis. So it, it varies with the type of interaction that we are talking about. And based on that, we can then determine how, to what extent suppliers need to be commoditized for a platform to be successful, because there are certain industries where they don't have to be commoditized to the full extent and platforms can still be successful. They can still hold on to the suppliers. Uh, there are certain configurations of platforms which uh, do not drive commoditization, but that is largely because those platforms are more focused on not so much standardizing the supply as much as they are on enabling the supply and empowering them. And so if you really think of it in these terms, when platforms aggregate the demand, they have to standardize the supply to simplify matchmaking, to simplify participation in the market. When platforms do not aggregate the demand, they end up empowering the supply. And a classic uh, example here is, say, Amazon uh, Marketplace versus Shopify, where Amazon aggregates the demand and hence has to standardize the supply and eventually commoditizes them. But Shopify does not need to make the matchmaking goal happen and hence it is able to empower the suppliers who then move into serving the market in many different ways so you know those are i would say that's where 
the idea of this whole thing starts. Uh, what's the, what are the dynamics of your industry? What is the level to which standardization of supply has already been been achieved? Maybe through open standards, maybe uh, through some other mechanisms like, say, a shared blockchain infrastructure. But if standardization has not been achieved through those back-end empowering mechanisms and it's being achieved through demand aggregation on the front end, then you end up in a situation where you will have to increasingly become commoditized to serve the platform's matchmaking needs. And this is fundamentally, you know, my my point of view about how we think about the future of work as well, because when we think of future of work, we, we constantly talk about two things, passion economy and gig economy. And the difference is just this, that the passion economy is being driven by platforms that uh, do not aggregate the demand and hence control and standardize the suppliers. And the, uh, the gig economy is being driven by platforms that control the demand own the reputation systems, manage the exchange and the escrow, and hence are able to commoditize the suppliers. So if you just think of that lens, um, that repeatedly helps you see, you know, if Apple Pay is entering a certain market, what is the current situation of banks? Will they get commoditized? Will they be able to compete? In Sweden, they don't get commoditized because they have already created standards at the back end to manage uh, payments. But in Spain, in Australia, it's the other way around that it's happening. Payments has not been standardized. And so increasingly, the the negotiation power lies with Apple than with the banks. Uh, The same thing, you, you can apply the same lens to literally any industry and you'll start seeing how control and commoditization play a really important role in determining who will win and who will not because exponential technologies are there but they are not democratically available to all businesses and it depends uh, these are the factors that determine who will be able to harness these technologies versus not and Sanjit I wanted to ask you uh, when listening to these notions of commoditizing supply or enabling and empowering supply do you think there are is any of these that is more desirable from a societal point of view? There's always been something more desirable from a societal point of view when we think of capitalism. It's not something that is unique to platforms. And just like in broadly in capitalism, you would prefer to have more equitable distribution of wealth and not have hoarding of wealth. In the same way, you would prefer to have something which standardizes the supply while Uh, driving equitable distribution of demand aggregation rather than holding of demand aggregation with with a few players. So if you think of it from from those perspectives, then when we actually talk about how platforms can be used for societal good, it all comes down to this basic concept that if you want to create something that is sustainable and that is actually uh, optimized for social welfare, then you need to regulate aggregation of demand and you need to empower standardization of supply because there is clearly a lot of benefit of standardization of supply. In fact, all the benefits of uh, running marketplaces and platforms emerge not from the aggregation of demand, but the standardization of supply. Uh, So if you can regulate the aggregation of demand while ensuring that the standardization of supply is uh, driven further, that would be the right way to shape the future of the platform economy. So, for example, if you could create a reputation system similar to what Airbnb has for every room in the world, but ensure that the the access to the demand side is not controlled by one player who also now controls the reputation system, then you would be able to better regulate competition. So that, that would be the ideal way to do it. Unfortunately, the problem is that a lot of the standardization of supply has happened as a consequence of the aggregation of demand. And that is the reason why today 
anybody who aggregated demand using a search engine or a social network or or uh, an e-commerce channel uh, has risen to a level where they are able to set standards for the supply side before other players can come in and, and start setting them. But if you really were to regulate the platform economy in the right way, the regulation should squarely focus on the the aggregation players and and not so much on the standard setters. And the regulation should focus on preventing, to some extent, the aggregation players from setting the standards rather than trying to break down their ability to aggregate. That is how you should think about regulation to make this happen. So the way we think about hoarding and redistribution of wealth, uh, we need to start thinking about hoarding and redistribution of demand uh, as we move forward. Okay, yeah, thanks. That's very clarifying. And Sanjit, um, to some extent, the industry is moving in these two directions. One direction where... The regulation is going to be much more important, I would say, because uh, also the the impacts on society are going to be much more important. No, not, it's not a case maybe that the most commoditizing and the platforms that tend to be more able to do both things, so to aggregate demand on one side and commoditize supplies on the others, uh, are also the ones that have a, a bigger footprint, You know, for example, in terms of uh, mobility or travel and uh, all the massively important processes that have a massive footprint. While on the other hand, we're talking about this passion economy that is much more into the intangible world and uh, uh, maybe needs less regulation. And it's funny to see today uh, that uh, in the end of the day, what we are seeing is uh, um, this big debate in the US and this big you know, mess around the TikTok, which is, uh, of course, a uh, passion economy uh, platform is uh, very much uh, in the intangible world and uh, still it's generated this crazy uh, you know case uh, that uh, is ending up these days with uh, Oracle taking over uh, you know with this uh, uh, I would say symbolic takeover because at the end of the day just the, the, the infrastructures we, we move but the substance will remain the same so what what is your thought what are your thoughts about this? When we think about things like passion economy and vertical marketplaces, the challenge is that the proponents of these ideas are thinking about only a part of the picture rather than the macro picture. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, when we think about, say, earlier platforms used to be horizontal, now they're becoming vertical because there are more coordination problems to be solved, there are more workflow problems to be solved. The, the, the actual fact is, if you look at the macro picture, the verticalization is happening because the horizontals have been increasingly abstracted and standardized and they are enabling the verticalization. That standardization may have happened at the API layer, but that is what's enabling the verticalization. Like if we just take the example of uh, video platforms right now, right? Zoom is the horizontal and in the future there's conjecture that a lot of verticals would develop. And what's emerging is that all these vertical you know video meeting platforms are not building on the zoom development kit they are building on agora's api uh, agora is another chinese company which uh, provides uh, which essentially abstracts uh, all the capabilities to to run a zoom for x right so if you look at this all these vertical platforms that are coming up for specific kinds of video use cases maybe conferences maybe a, 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 a certain kind of business development call um, these are all unique um, vertical zooms that are coming up they are coming up not because we're moving from horizontal to vertical but because the horizontal has been abstracted away from 
an aggregator model, a demand aggregation model to a supply standardization model. So this view that we are actually moving from horizontal marketplaces to vertical marketplaces is a very narrow and, uh, 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 you know, it's a view that does not take the full picture of the macro. Because what is actually happening is we're not moving from horizontal marketplaces to vertical marketplaces. We're moving from horizontal demand aggregation to vertical demand aggregation. The supply is still standardized at a horizontal level because now you have all these cross-vertical APIs that are provided to standardize the supply. So that's how I think about what's happening in vertical marketplaces. But the same thing is happening on the passion economy side because a lot of proponents of the passion economy are coming at it from what's happening on the demand side. They're not seeing the changes happening on the supply side. So when you think of what's happening on the demand side, you end up seeing marketplaces where you end up seeing more of this happening in intangibles where the supply and demand can be immediately connected. But if you think of what's happening on the supply side, uh, if you go beyond the substacks and the TikToks of the world and you think about how the be- the traditional benefits package at in the uh, you know the the so-called traditional Fordist bundle is being unbundled, and each benefit is now being provided as a service. That to me is the real passion economy, not the substacks and the TikToks of the world. The real passion economy is that I don't have to care about the, my my benefits. They don't have to be bundled with my job. They don't have to be vertically integrated inside a firm because the jobs and the benefits subsidize each other. All of these can exist outside, and I can rebundle them. I can push a newsletter on Substack, I can do something else somewhere else, but there's also this benefit as a service I can pull in from here. So the passion economy is as much what health insurance companies are doing as much as it is about what the Substacks and TikToks of the world are doing. So I, I hope that clarifies. When I, when I think of the macro, it's all that's happening at the back end that is more interesting than just what's happening on the demand side of it, uh, which is where we see the verticals and the intangibles coming up more more prominently. Well, that's an extremely interesting take, and I would like to go a bit more in deep into that. If I understand well, what you're saying is that uh, on the production side of the economy, we are seeing this continuous unbundling of labor from welfare, essentially. And uh, supposedly, as I understand, that this should, uh, I think, first of all, my reaction is uh, this is massively challenging for the very idea of a firm. You know, because the individuals, the teams becomes much more become much more powerful. And in the end of the day, I think we can definitely agree with that. You know, because we are living through, and this again is a point that Lee Jean also uh, was raising recently. This idea of the micro entrepreneurship. So it's not just passion economy; it's also the idea of entrepreneurship that is unbundling. And that's also a thesis from Nicolas Collin that was formerly one of our guests on the on the podcast. My question is, to see really massive impacts on society, what is your take on what is happening on the, on the side of the consumer? So if this unbundling of production happens and the expectations of the, of the people, of the of society, uh, with regards to you know, our uh, day-to-day experience, so consumerism, the kind of expression of the consumer side of the economy doesn't change. No, so, if, for example, if we don't change our expectations uh, with regards to our community experience, with our day-to-day life experience, so I, I'm afraid that uh, uh, the result of this unbundling of the production side uh, and also something that also James Carrier spoke about in this uh, 
Pocas, so what he calls the Matthew law. So the idea that all the best become better and the others become worse. So you, we have this Pareto distribution of professionals you know, and, and the most capable ones become the best of the industry and the other ones become just mediocre workers. So I'm curious to see if we can engage in Franco with this idea of the nichification of our society, try to understand what does it mean in terms of societal change, what needs to change in terms of our expectations on the consumer side of the economy. Yeah, no, that's great. I think, you know, I've written quite extensively on this topic in the past. Uh, what we are driving towards is essentially increasingly either commoditization of work or it is creation of a superstar economy where exactly the Matthew effect you're talking about, the rich becomes richer, that feedback loop pushes some people towards inordinately high gains and the others towards much less, uh, uh, you know, ability to to stand out in the market. And so there are, you know, at least three ideas that I want to tease out over here, right? The first is the nature of work itself, uh, which, what kind of work are we talking about? The second is uh, the nature of the medium. Uh, and and the, the third is um, just about uh, what you mentioned about bundling, unbundling of jobs. Where are we? Is this the end? Uh, how is this going to, uh, you know, evolve further? So the first part is the simplest. Let's talk about the nature of work. The nature of work, uh, you know, the more commodified work, uh, the, the more standardized uh, a certain kind of work starts getting because you take away the very factor that used to provide agency to the worker. You take away uh, the the learning advantage that workers had. Ultimately, workers differentiate themselves through skills and which which is acquired through a learning advantage and if technology comes in and commoditizes that learning advantage then that work gets commoditized so a classic example of that is just you know the london cabbie who used to uh, have this learning advantage that he, he has driven all his life so he just knows the one ways and the two ways and uh, every part of the the london map in his head but the moment um, GPS comes in and Uber and Waze start coming in, that learning advantage has been commoditized. The same thing to some extent is happening, for example, with Pingan Good Doctor, which is a telehealth platform in uh, China, connects uh, doctors and patients. And uh, with every intervention that the doctor provides to the patients, the AI is learning the symptoms and the feedback provided. And through that, the AI is standardizing and commodifying the doctor's learning advantage. And the same thing to some extent happens with retail assistance software today because uh, large retail chains provide software to their assistants. And the idea is that uh, the software keeps learning from the best assistants and standardizes that so that every assist in, in the future, you don't need to hire really good assistants. The software will do half the job. So the human skill gets increasingly commodified. That's the first piece to think about nature of work is your learning advantage something that's going to get commodified because of changes in technology? Is your learning advantage something that uh, is going to be taken up? Uh, and this applies not just to uh, humans, it also apply to, applies to organizations. But especially at, for workers, it's, it's, it's a lot simpler to understand that if your competitive advantage was driven on a specialized skill set, a specialized learning ability that is now fully embedded into software, then somebody else can take it up without needing to go through that learning curve anymore. And so your uh, role has become commodified. So that's the first thing. How commodified uh, can your role get because of technology, right? The second thing, so that's the nature of work. The second thing is the nature of uh, the medium or the nature of the market that we are talking about. 
is this a market where reputation systems play a really important role is this a market that requires you to signal your credibility is this a market that requires credibility in the first place and the thing is that the first and the second thing move hand in hand if your learning advantage has not been commodified then you are automatically placed in a market where credibility is important because the ones who learn the best should be able to uh, will deliver the best and should be able to then earn the best and the moment you start thinking about that reputation systems start coming in because uh, whether it's a freelancing uh, network or whether it's any other market system there is a reputation system on the basis of which the demand side will pick the best workers and even if you think of traditional organizations internally there are reputation systems the more we move towards innovation and micro enterprises inside an organization we are relying on internal reputation systems and they are uh, susceptible to the same feedback loops and matthew effects and superstar economy effects that open market reputation systems are so my point is that if you haven't been commoditized by technology uh, or your learning advantage hasn't been commodified by technology the next challenge you have to surpass is this reputation system piece because you are now in a market where higher value players uh, or the players who can signal their value better will be treated much better they will get more opportunities that will help them reinvest and signal their value even more and so there's a positive network effect a positive feedback loop that starts running in because of these reputation systems and that creates the matthew effect that uh, you know you were talking about so that's the second piece to think about the third piece then is well with all of this doom and gloom are we already at the end of this shift of unbundling of jobs and uh, my my experience here is is just that i've never seen bundles getting unbundled without them getting subsequently rebundled traditional bundles were built around production efficiencies they were built around the firm boundaries they were built around production supply chains so they were built around the constraints of what enabled efficient production as we move forward because the ability to serve the demand is the key control point you will have to rebundle in order to best serve the demand so even if jobs have become unbundled today we have to think about the jobs market and see is this unbundling of jobs the new way in which jobs will work or will they be rebundled outside the firm in a new way where you can take health insurance as an api you can take uh, unionization as an api and rebundle all of this into a new bundle which is different from the firm as an organization of work bundle and a new kind of work bundle emerges around a problem to be solved so just like uh, you know financial services for example went from banks to unbundled fintech to now being rebundled around the customer uh, we will now similarly see work being rebundled around a problem to be solved and so i think if you really think of the future of work you have to think about all these three elements to really paint a full picture and i haven't you know talked to some of the other pieces uh, in terms of you know even before you think about the nature of the job you have to kind of break the job into tasks and learning advantages and learning advantages get commodified but so do tasks because some tasks get automated so uh, you have to really think about a combination of the two things that and how they hit you so it's really this whole landscape we need to think through before we say this is going to be the future of work and so i really feel that we we are very much the early stages of this unbundling and are far from the rebundling that is required to really take us to the new future of work where we are today is is definitely not the future of work it's a transition stage much like uh you know we we were in say 
uh, with Napster coming in and unbundling the album. Until it got rebundled into Spotify or into iTunes, we did not have new uh, the new landscape for competition. And so, you know, if you if you really think of it, you have to wait for the rebundling to really see what the future of work looks like. I'm very intrigued by this idea of uh, the post-firm uh, bundle. It looks like we are unbundling the firm, and that's something that we are seeing. Uh, and you know, one key example is the platform economy, no? And uh, and to some extent, you know, this idea that you transform a complex firm into a hub, uh, and and to some extent, and also the unbundling, as we said, of the welfare uh, services. Uh, but I would like to explore a little bit more with you what this uh, post-firm bundle is. And, uh, uh, you know, as you were speaking, I was wondering, uh, is this post-firm uh, bundle something like a post-org? So the, 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 the real future of organizations, uh, it's all about this uh, rebundling into something different after the unbundling of the firm and the welfare. And the last to this question, if you, if you want to explore this with me, I have two points. One is, uh, will this post-firm rebundling of work just be the place for uh, these superstars? Or, you know, there is a place in these new bundles also for, you know, people that need to be, I don't know, uh, sus- you know sustained, enabled, and need to have uh, uh, some kind of uh, um, non-superstar role in producing value, I would say, and, 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 and work. Uh, and, uh, you know, another nuance that I would like to explore with you is uh, what are these post-bundle about? So what are the key processes and, uh, uh, you know, what are the key uh, outputs that they will produce? Because another very interesting thing we are wrangling with these days, uh, it's the idea that uh, we can, we could be able to, you know, envision a new human development thesis around uh, what we call the economies of essentials. Uh, so, for example, there is an interesting, uh, very interesting uh, project that we have been in, uh, interviewing recently called Participatory City. Uh, it's a UK-based uh, urban uh, development project, I would say, but community development project, I would say, uh, where they have taken two boroughs of London and they are expanding now and they've created these uh, shared spaces for creation. And now they have tons of enterprises coming up, uh, small teams. Uh, enterprising in in, in uh, topics uh, in, in industries such as you know clothes or food or um, you know the, this basic economy, these economies of essential, you know, the, the essential of uh, uh, you know uh, shelter, food, uh, um, you know the experience of being together, uh, clothing, and really these basic processes that seem to be a, a good place, a promising place where this new human expression, new human development thesis could be, uh, could be expressed. So maybe these post-firm bundles can operate in this space. What is your, what is your take? Yeah, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, if, if we think of this, uh, this key idea that the industrial bundles were all driven by production designs and production efficiencies and uh, the the new bundles are essentially driven by customer problems and customer value propositions. And I I don't even want to use the word customer, uh, just consumer, because it's any form of demand, right? Uh, It's, it's not, uh, you know, uh, a market transaction. It's any form of demand around which you, you develop, develop this. So um, if you think of 
work and i'll come back to your other question about cities and uh, uh, you know social bundles because that's that's uh, fundamentally different from um, you know the post um, the new work bundle uh, if you think of the work bundle per se uh, i think there's a bit of uh, there's some level of emerging theory development now in terms of what this could look like by looking at certain other spheres so there, there's quite a bit of work uh, which has looked at uh, you know military combat where essentially while the army is an organization and the army works like an organization uh, and it works like a very hierarchical traditional forest organization but because they operate during combat in an environment of extreme uncertainty the teams that actually work together are pulled together on the fly they are pulled together on the basis of certain advantages and they are uh, focused on the problem to be solved and if you just take that idea in the case of an army or uh, you know if you take that kind of an example the uncertainty is is more disruptive rather than continuous it 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 happens and then it goes away and then it happens so the the hierarchy continues to be there while the teams organize around uncertainty but if you just translate that idea into the field of work and if you um, you know think that in 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 the emerging landscape we are going to be centered around solutioning of customer problems i would say that we would have to rebundle the bundles that are being created today the bundles that are being created today are people armed with uh, you know publishing tools to to publish and talk about it people armed with uh, or publish and build an audience Pe- people armed with uh, you know um, design tools to design and collaborate whether it's you know what started with photoshop and what's now moved to figma and so uh, if you just take for example the move from photoshop to figma we're already seeing a new way to z bundle where you can z bundle uh, designers around a problem right so again when we think about it in terms of where these z bundling opportunities lie today they seem to be uh, or i would say it's more staccato it's more something that's happening episodically rather than a fundamentally new design but moving forward that is where i would say the rebundling would happen where uh, you would have more of uh, these work coordination uh, or work, work coordination infrastructures that would be developed that don't necessarily need to own the demand and the the workers self organize themselves around these work coordination infrastructures so if you think of photoshop as a one person play and figma as a work coordination infrastructure for designers i would think that those kinds of work coordination infrastructures need to be developed at scale to really start seeing end to end solutioning of a problem because even if you coordinate design there are other pieces into which design fits in and those pieces today are linear and hence are contained within a firm and uh, hence it kind of breaks down but if you can uh, think of this as new work coordination infrastructures being developed over the next uh, several years that would then drive the rebundling of work so that teams can easily reconfigure themselves around a problem solve that problem create a new agency around a particular problem without having to do it in the traditional way of building an agency and so that's that's how i would think about uh, the new uh, bundle because even today uh when we start a new startup when we start a new business it is all started still with the forest bundle in mind but if going forward 
we were starting new businesses because teams had uh, uh, you know elastically come together to solve three or four problems and then realized that there's a common model in which they can continue solving problems and then they come together as as a bundle that would be the new v bundled model because of these work coordination infrastructures so i know that sounds a little abstract at this point because we don't have enough of that examples of these work coordination infrastructures built up yet but my point is that that is what needs to come in in this transition from a traditional bundle to an unbundling uh, open market to a v bundling and again if i take that in in e-commerce right the traditional bundle was the store and the unbundling happened when anybody could sell sell online and then reputation systems started coming in and controlling it and that's what for example is happening in the gig economy but then it's now moving towards independent tools that uh, you you can really use whether it's shopify or stripe atlas or any of these other kinds of tools that help you now rebundle and create an end-to-end retail experience for instance so that is what I mean uh, in terms of the bundling of, of work as we move forward. Thank you. That's super interesting take. Uh, what I wanted to follow up on is um, because I know you're interested in country competitiveness and the geopolitical landscape that we briefly mentioned before. But so how do you see that this work coordination infrastructure uh, links to current institutions and, you know, our uh, national governments, but even cities to some extent, as we know that they are big attractors for uh, a lot of tech and innovation. Um, so I, I'd be very curious to see how you how you see this transition in light of the geopolitical landscape. So if we think of the geopolitical landscape, right, uh, we, we have to think of, uh, again, additional macro variables over here, because now we're talking about countries competing with each other. And uh, when we just think about work coordination infrastructure and infrastructural plays like that in the long run, they get commoditized. So if you think about country competitiveness, country competitiveness is is uh, to a large extent, the way it's it's playing out right now is around building these kinds of infrastructures, but more importantly, exporting those infrastructures and creating standards so that the whole world now starts following your standard. So what I, what, what I believe is really happening at this point in time, if you think of country competitiveness, is that traditional globalization was built around contracts, whether you call it, you know, I'm using the term contracts loosely, but it was built around bilateral agreements, multilateral agreements, right? Uh, much like how traditional supply-driven businesses worked around contracts. Future globalization or the new wave of globalization that is happening is going to happen around standards and protocols, much like, uh, you know, a lot of uh, ecosystems have now started moving into standards and protocols rather than contracts. Um, countries will start moving or, or working around standards and protocols. And the best example of this is actually the Belt and Road Initiative by China. So if you think of the Belt and Road Initiative, and I'll come back to the work coordination infrastructure, but if, since we're talking country, I want to take it more macro. If you think of the Belt and Road infrastructure, it's a, it's a trade and financial flows coordination infrastructure. That's what it is. It's it's a bunch of uh, physical infrastructure like ports and highways, but it's also special economic zones. And what China is, uh, is essentially doing is it's created a public-private cooperation framework so that countries like Alibaba can align their capabilities along the Belt and Road. So Alibaba, for example, has launched the electronic world trade platform EWTP, which is essentially a trade coordination infrastructure. 
where it sets up business hubs in individual countries, provides them the, them the ability to digitize their SMEs so that they have access to global trade, and then initially drives the demand for that from the Chinese market. But then the goal is once enough hubs around the world are connected to China's demand, eventually those countries can all then now start working with each other as demand and supply as well. And so there's an entirely new trade infrastructure that's now been created. And by virtue of owning Alibaba.com and owning all the risk management and credit scoring models that Ant Financial has, Alibaba has kind of all the pieces in place to exert control over this trade that happens across the Belt and Road, right? And so, you know, that is what I would think of if we if we go beyond just the work infrastructures to the really large trade infrastructures, financial infrastructures. And Financial today is investing in the leading payments wallet in every country. And the reason for that is, uh, or, or the way it does that is it goes to a country, it discusses an investment in the leading payments wallet, but the investment is made only on the condition that they move their infrastructure to the uh, Alibaba cloud, which is called Aliyun. And so it's contingent on building on top of the Alibaba cloud. So the idea eventually is then to create a payments interoperability infrastructure uh, at a global level once you've connected all of these payment wallets on the same cloud. And Alibaba is also, uh, and Financial is also going to the banks in these countries and saying, I can help you uh, lend to the cash economy just because I've got these great credit scoring models. Uh, why don't you build your bank on my cloud? And so essentially, it's now creating an alternate financial infrastructure, which then when you connect that back with the Belt and Road Initiative, helps China set up this its infrastructure standards and protocols across all these markets. And, and you know, the trade and payments is one part of it, using which China then wants, um, uh, you know, global um, currency flows to move from a USD indexed model to uh, more of a China than Minbi uh, indexed model, uh, because that will depend on how much trade it is able to capture through these systems. But even if you look at what China is doing through 5G, for example, um, the idea is to not just provide 5G, but also provide services, also provide smart city operations infrastructure whether it's Alibaba providing its city brain project, which it does in Malaysia right now, or Huawei running the uh, city operations in, in multiple cities around, along the Belt and Road. The idea is, again, to export infrastructure, export standards and protocols, and through that, create the new globalization. And I think the final part of it, uh, and I'm kind of writing all of this in a, in a paper that's going to come out with the Brookings Institution in a couple of months. Uh, the final uh, component of this is what they do with national identity. They're, especially post-COVID, they're exporting a lot of uh, identity management systems around the world uh, in the name of contact tracing, but then also it helps to create the same standards and protocols that uh, all these countries will use. So what I'm trying to say is that the future globalization is not about creating trade blocks. It's not about bilateral agreements. It's about using the same underlying infrastructure, whether it's trade coordination, whether it is work coordination, whether it is uh, financial services interoperability. It's fundamentally creating the same infrastructure for all these things. And that is what I really mean uh, when I think of a country as a platform, because fundamentally the idea of a platform is to open yourself to the extent that you can standardize uh, coordination for all players and then control and aggregate market activity on top of this standardized infrastructure. And that's essentially what the Belt and Road combined with Alibaba, Huawei, uh, and uh, uh, ZTE and other players is kind of looking to do. So that's that's my, you know, my view of how 
globalization is going to play out very much in a platform ecosystem model over the next few years. That gives us a lot to, to think about, I think. Um, and um, I have some questions, I think, that, that come to my mind uh, very much related to these um, reflections that uh, that you are bringing about. And, you know, first thing is uh, you spoke about basically countries, but, uh, for example, you wrote once about Singapore, so this idea of... Uh, also cities, you know, that uh, are, you know, uh, kind of gaining uh, some kind of relevance, especially in uh, uh, this perspective of uh, partial deglobalization that we are seeing. So you, it's interesting to, to hear you talk about this uh, new phase of globalization that seems to be more than a globalization of trade, even if you mentioned rightly the trade infrastructure that especially China is deploying at the moment. Uh, but it looks like uh, it's kind of a globalization of uh, um, information infrastructures. Uh, sorry, information infrastructures. And, and, and to some extent, it's also a cultural globalization. Huh? Um, so I'm really keen to explore with you as we enter the final parts of this conversation. Uh, what are the dynamics that you see uh, happening when it comes to these uh, dual uh, I would say polarities, the polarity of the global and the polarities of the local, uh, especially if you think about, for example, uh, competitiveness from a slightly different point of view, which is, for example, the point of view of uh, uh, resilience. Uh, I think COVID uh, showed that uh, uh, some countries have been able to establish a better trust with their citizens uh, just because they demonstrated some uh, capability to control the spread of a virus, for example, or more in general, I think to be more resilient to shocks. And uh, in, a, in a perspective of a world that uh, uh, sadly uh, is going to be exposed to much more uncertainty and shocks uh, due to you know, climate change or due to pandemics or due to uh, political instabilities or whatever, or you know, the five uh, hurricanes that at the moment are raging around uh, the Atlantic, uh, uh, do you have some ideas about how this local resilience and globalization of information infrastructure, you know, could uh, play out from the perspective of this new uh, platform economy and unbundling and rebundling of the firm? What are your thoughts on, on this, if any? Yeah, absolutely. So as, as I mentioned, when you asked me about uh, what the thesis of the next book would be, right, I see all of this eventually goes down to how you handle mechanisms around control and um, around commoditization, right? It, it goes down to those two fundamental aspects. And uh, if, if, for example, you build these systems with a very centralized control mindset, you're kind of going against the resilience model. So let, let me give a, a, a simple example of that. Let's say... Uh, you know, China builds out this overall infrastructure and this infrastructure is not just the physical trade infrastructure, but all the digital infrastructure around it, right? The the risk scoring algorithms, all of that is part of this infrastructure, right? If, say, they build it out or if any country builds out this infrastructure and exports it around the world, it is constantly building a single point of failure if it is the sole creator and exporter of this infrastructure. If you want to build for resilience, you want to empower the edges to also innovate and then contribute reusable elements back to this infrastructure. 
the traditional model of uh, you know, how we think about innovation and platform ecosystems is actually very stunted in the sense that the core is uniquely owned by the platform and the platform opens out a narrow uh, set of privileges and uh, capabilities at the edge and innovation happens over there, uh, which is all great for open innovation, but the platform still remains, the platform owner uh, and their internal innovation roadmap create the central point of failure for this whole ecosystem. And that is where resilience does not come in. If instead, every app developer had the ability to build, but also contribute code back and be a part of that whole pool of value that the platform is generating and not just build his app at, at, at one end, uh, and not just apps, anybody in the ecosystem, if they could constantly contribute back into the platform's code, that would make the system resilient because it would constantly learn and systematize what it was learning at the edges. Now, the same challenge is happening with this new form of globalization, where if you see, um, you know, one or two countries gaining inordinately high power uh, because of this whole feedback loop of the more people use my infrastructure, the more data flows I get. And when I mean infrastructure, I mean all this digital infrastructure, information infrastructure, the more data flows I get, the more data flows I get, the better learning models and prediction capability I have, and the better I can solve problems for these individual cities uh, and countries around the world. All of that is still a very centralized way of looking at it and prevents the creation of a resilient infrastructure. A resilient infrastructure would provide enough agency to all these other countries and cities. They would uh, run their own uh, you know, countries and cities using this underlying infrastructure, but then because it's kind of the under underlying piece is co-owned, they would keep contributing back. And they would the whole ecosystem would build out the platform rather than one single player building out the platform. And the, that is fundamentally the only way to build resilience in uh, and in uh, you know in a platform uh, ecosystem model where you want to a ensure that you don't have a single point of failure and b ensure that you don't create uh, extreme inequality, extreme concentration of power, extreme concentration of control, and you redistribute all of it. If you want to create, uh, if you want to set it up in a model that redistributes all of this, then you need to have the mechanisms to ensure that the whole ecosystem has that platform ownership or in this globalization model or the cities model, the, the entire, all the cities, all the countries have the underlying infrastructure ownership. In fact, Google, uh, you know, Sidewalk Labs pulled out of Toronto, I think a couple of weeks back. And that was one of the big failures that Google had in recent times. But Sidewalk Labs had the same issue. It had a single point of failure. It has a single point of control. And that is the challenge with, um, getting into the real world, building infrastructure for the real world, and then hoarding and centralizing the data capabilities that run that infrastructure. So until we really free that up and make them public goods, make the AI running these infrastructures itself a public good, until that happens, we will not build res resilient systems. And so I think that is that is really uh, how I would see the, the future landscape and how you would think about resilience in this landscape. We really transcended the conversation today and you really contributed to give us a um, much broader point of view on, these, uh, on this uh, conversation. I'm sure that we need to have another chat. It was so enriching to explore these perspectives. What we are seeing here with you is that um, these dynamics are bringing competition to a very different layer. This idea that platforms are playing out in this international context 
at the end of the day, they may have a much less important influence if we uh, see uh, and look into what states, for example, can uh, do by using the same dynamics that, for example, platforms have been using uh, in the last decade. So I would like to ask you to just add uh, a few bits, if you want, uh, with regards to things that you think are very much important to say and maybe we didn't touch during this conversation. I think one of the most important things that uh, it depends on who's listening to this. And uh, if you're running a business, um, and especially if you're running a business and thinking about how do I transform my business, you need to think about the perspective that it's not all about exponential technology. It's also about the spectrum of control and commoditization and where your business currently sits on that. Because there are positions in that whole map where no amount of exponential technologies are going to save you. And irrespective of what hundreds of consultants may have to say about it, just because other companies are doing it may not work just because of where control and commoditization have already started playing out in your landscape. At the same time, if you do not sit in those positions, you need to know what strategy is right for you. It's not, here's what Amazon did, and that's why here's the platform strategy that works for us because we're also a retailer. It's not about that. It's uh, it's about understanding what are where are you in that evolution and what kind of... Uh, uh, Rules can you play in the ecosystem, uh, which which will allow you to have uh, the right ability to to harness uh, you know the value created by the ecosystem and how commoditized is the rest of the ecosystem? How standardized is it to enable you to play those roles? So the first thing is to kind of just temper this idea about exponential technologies because it's just gone a little too far uh, to becoming this. Uh, uh, panacea for all kinds of business uh, issues today, right? So that's the first piece I would think about. The second thing I would just like to uh, call out again is when we think about regulation, because I've done a lot of work in uh, regulation of these platforms, I repeatedly see regulators not making a distinction between the demand aggregation power of these platforms and the, the uh, work coordination, supply coordination, production coordination piece of these platforms. And once you break it out into those two pieces, you can see what you need to empower in order to enable innovation and what you need to regulate in order to ensure that, uh, you know, monopoly or monopsony effects are mitigated. And until we make that distinction, we'll always keep thinking that regulation is going to stifle innovation because when we think regulation, we're simultaneously regulating both the demand aggregation and the supply empowerment. So that's the other thing I would uh, just just call out and i think the final piece what we talked about resilience cannot be overstated but then again um having you know worked a lot on societal platforms which are uh, also with the best intents uh, like if you look at a lot of the work that the gates foundation is doing there or nilakani foundation with which i work they are doing a lot of them are kind of uh, building the societal platform model how can we take this to a level where it uh, benefits society where it becomes the future of education of healthcare of national identity systems um, i think that is something we all need to really think about and all play a role in the in the very in, in the specific way in which we interface with this topic so i yeah i'll just pause it pause it on those three points i just wanted to thank you very much because uh, for me this has been a very eye-opening conversation and i think i i also had some ideas about control and commoditization that uh, definitely I got a, a very uh, much eye-opened understanding. So thank you very much for this.
conversation. And I look forward to reconnect again because indeed there's a lot of ground to cover still. I just want to rhyme with what Stina said, you know, that uh, really I think uh, you contributed to open quite a lot of new, uh, you know, threads in our in our thinking. So thanks very much, Sanjit. It was an amazing conversation and I'm looking forward to uh, reconnect with you for our listeners. Thank you. Thanks, Simone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Walter Mobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music. Thank you.